LinkedIn presents. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is the next big idea. Today, better living through data. September 4th, 2002, the Oakland Athletics are at home hosting the Kansas City Royals. And tonight, the A's have just one job, win. Now, yes, of course, that's pretty much always the job when you're a Major League Baseball team. But tonight is different. The stakes are higher. The A's have won 19 games in a row, beat the Royals, which shouldn't be too hard, and they'll extend that winning streak to 20, an American League record. The A's get off to a great start. After the first three innings, it's 11-0. Hard to imagine a more comfortable lead than that. But then, to the horror of the 55,000 fans in attendance, Oakland's lead starts to evaporate. They give up five runs in the fourth, another five in the eighth. And then, with the Royals up to bat in the top of the ninth. Notch is ready. One-two pitch. Alisea puts it in play. A looper to left field. It's in for a base hit. Around third tank for the plate. Here comes the tying run. Sliding save. And the ball game is tied at 11 all. And the A's have blown an 11 to nothing lead. And it also looks like they've blown their chance of nabbing that record for consecutive wins. Bottom of the ninth, A's at bat. Their leadoff hitter flies out to right field. Next up, Scott Hatterberg. He's in to pinch hit, which is a real surprise to Hatterberg, who didn't think he was playing tonight and has spent most of the game drinking coffee. Hatterberg is new to the A's this year after spending seven unremarkable seasons as a catcher for the Red Sox. When the A's picked him up, he was overweight, washed up, a second stringer who couldn't throw anymore. No team wanted him, so the A's got him cheap. But they didn't sign him as an act of charity. The A's did it because they're trying something different this season. Under the leadership of general manager Billy Bean, the front office has discarded conventional wisdom in favor of cold, hard statistics. They've gathered reams of data collected by everyone from super fans to physics professors, and they're using that data to suss out the hidden talents of undervalued players, like Hatterberg. Yes, he's got a bum arm, and sadly, he's no slugger, But the statistics are clear. Hatterberg has great plate discipline. He doesn't swing at lousy pitches. And that means he's unusually good at creating runs. Now the pitch. Swung on. There's a high drive. Hit way back. Right center field. That one is gone. And it's 20 consecutive victories for the Oakland Athletics on an unbelievable night when they lost an 11-0 lead. have accomplished what no one has before. They have won 20 consecutive games. If this story sounds familiar to you, then you've probably read Michael Lewis's 2003 masterpiece, Moneyball, or seen the film adaptation starring Brad Pitt as Billy Bean. Now, if you ask me, having Brad Pitt play you in a movie is just about the most flattering thing that can happen to a person. And the reason Billy Bean deserves that great honor is this. He demonstrated that you can breathe new life into an old game by harnessing the power of data analytics. This, of course, begs the question, if you could do that for America's pastime, what else can you moneyball? The answer, it turns out, is just about anything. Reflecting on the success of his book, Michael Lewis wrote, in the past decade or so, a lot of people have taken the Oakland A's as their role model and set out to use better data and better analysis of that data to find market inefficiencies. I've read articles about Moneyball for Education, Moneyball for Movie Studio, Moneyball for Medicare, Moneyball for Golf, Moneyball for Farming, for Book Publishing, Presidential Campaigns, Moneyball for Government, Moneyball for Bankers, and so on. Well, Michael, here's a new one for your list, Moneyball for Your Life. That's the premise of a new book called Don't Trust Your Gut by Seth Stevens Davidowitz. Seth is a former Google data scientist and Wharton professor who's also, unsurprisingly, a diehard baseball fan. Seth analyzes massive data sets, many of which have only become available in the past few years, to answer some of life's biggest questions. 
How should you pick your spouse? What are the keys to success? How do you achieve happiness? As the title suggests, your intuition about these things is often wrong. But with the help of big data and Seth's guidance, you can, as he puts it, hack the market inefficiencies of life and start making better decisions. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Seth Stevens Davidowitz, welcome to the Next Big Idea podcast. Thanks for having me, Rufus. The first two lines of your book read, you can make better decisions. Big data can help you. How did you come up with this opening? Oh, uh, that was a little bit of a data-driven opening where there's been a study of a whole large sample of books on Amazon Kindle, and they've, te- they've examined which sentences get underlined the most on, on these books. And they found that uh, the word that most predicts sentences will be underlined by readers is the word you. Uh, so that was sh- shamelessly using the data, uh, sticking a couple U's in there because I think people are more self-absorbed than they let on. And people really are, are drawn to the idea that big data can help you make better decisions. So You say one of the reasons that big data is so useful in making decisions is that the basic facts about the world are hidden from us. I thought that's so interesting. How, how are the basic facts of the world hidden? Well, some of it's just, lying. So my first book was Everybody Lies. And that was all about, you know, like the secrets that can be uncovered with big data about sexuality and racism and child abuse. Uh, but even from a you know self-help perspective, there are many things hidden from us. I have a big section on who's secretly rich in the United States. Yeah. And, you know, that's complicated because so many people are playing up or down their wealth in life. Uh, that we don't totally know, okay, where are people really making their money? And another thing is, I just find the media is very misleading in Mm -hmm. that they're always telling us these, you know, crazy stories that we're all drawn to. And it just gives us a very misleading view of how the world works. I talk about the age of successful entrepreneurs. And if you look in magazines, successful entrepreneurs are in their 20s, because that just makes for better stories. So I think the average age and uh, of entrepreneurs featured in business magazines about 27. If you look at the entire universe of entrepreneurs, the average age of successful entrepreneur is 42. Uh, so that's kind of another way where the, where we're getting a, we're getting lied to in many ways about what success typically looks like. Well, as a as a 54 year old entrepreneur, I was uh, underlining that section with great enthusiasm. And I think I think there's also a data point that the probability of success increases until the age of 60. Yeah, which is pretty shocking uh, to to me. Just nobody thinks of a 60-year-old entrepreneur. Music, music to my ears. Well, um, this topic fascinates me because, you know, it seems to me that we have a belief as a culture that passion and love are the driving forces of success in life. And, you know, we tell our kids, just do what you love. But when we're planning on going to the beach, let's say, we check the weather to check the probability of rain. If you have a dream of opening a toy store, most Americans, I don't think, look at the probability of success of, or, and failure of toy stores. Like, like, like People don't look at the data. And it, it strikes me that there's a, almost a cultural investment in, you know, it's all about finding yourself and passion and love. And we, do, we don't want to discourage that. And probabilistic feeling feels almost like a betrayal of this kind of follow your passion sensibility. Is that something you come up against? Yeah, I think so. I mean, there are, ma- there are many motivations for a book. And one of them was just following the data, as mentioned, on what sells and what get, gets underlined. But another motivation for the book is I'm an enormous baseball fan. And yeah. any baseball fan has noticed that the game has radically changed driven by data analytics. And I, I'm kind of like, this has proven so successful in baseball. It's been proven so successful in other arenas, in finance, in Silicon Valley, in the business world. But it, it is striking that these major life decisions 
I think the vast majority of us kind of fly blind. Absolutely. Well, and and I think I think one can have both. If my I have I have three boys, Seth, and uh, I'd like them to know that I do want them to follow their hearts, but I also want them to do that supported by analytics and understanding probabilities. Right? I mean, you can you can have both. Um, I love this. You cite Harari's not Sapiens but Homo Deus, the follow up to his famous book Sapiens, in which he says we're going through a tremendous religious revolution, the likes of which has not been seen since the 18th century. And he goes on to say, in the 21st century, feelings are no longer the best algorithms in the world. We're developing superior algorithms that utilize unprecedented computer power and giant databases. And under dataism, which he says is this sort of new religion coming, when you contemplate whom to marry, which career to pursue, and whether to start a war, the answer is now algorithms that know us better than we know ourselves. So that, uh, I'd forgotten that passage, but that's really a kind of provocative prediction that we're probably only in the early stages right now, right, of changing how we think, but that this is coming. I largely agree with that. And one of the reasons I included it is, Harari is just so much better at making things sound profound than I can. So I just make these <laughs> yeah. kind of silly jokes and you know tease yeah. myself, precisely like self-deprecating. And I'm like, wow, I'll just sit, quote Harari, and now everyone will feel like this is a really profound thing I'm engaging, uh, you know, of, de- of uh, showing some of the results of dataism. I, I, I think people reading my book would feel like I hope everybody takes two or three three things away from it that is legitimately useful. Yeah. Uh, in their life. Yeah. Certainly I have made some changes based on the data, but I totally agree that this is the early innings and you can't just use this book and just like anytime you're facing a t- decision, you know, go to page 126 of don't trust your gut and now it's over. Uh, we're, we're not there yet. We might, we might get to that point. We're not there yet. Uh, but we are at the, in the early innings where you, where I think we can really be assisted mm-hmm. uh, by data and at least correct uh, some of our faulty intuition. Well, let's get into the nuts and bolts here. You use data science in this book, Seth, to answer, by my count, four key questions. There's sort of best approach to dating and relationships. There's how to be good parents. How do we achieve success? And what makes people happy? Well, why don't we start with dating? It's so interesting. We've got these new large data sets from OkCupid and other dating sites. What have you learned about how to be effective in the dating scene? Well, there, there are two questions. There's how to be effective and get more dates. And yeah, there's who yeah. should you try to pick. For effectiveness, there are these surprising counterintuitive results. Uh, Christian Rudder analyzing OkCupid data has found that one of the ways you can increase your odds of being successful in dating is being polarizing. So there are all these people on dating sites with you know what, what some might consider wacky looks, you know, and they do really well in online dating. And the reason for that is because some people are really, really into them. And that's really what you want in dating. You want some people really, really into you uh, rather than everyone thinking you're kind of okay, meh. That's actually something I used in my own life because uh, I don't think it's going to surprise anybody that I'm considered extremely nerdy. And, you know, my friends in my dark, long decades of single life, my friends were giving me advice. They were saying, you know, be less nerdy, be less weird. Uh, learn how to be more normal. And I think the data suggests, if anything, the opposite, uh, nerd it up. Because, yes, a lot of people are not going to be into you. They're going to be turned off by you. They're going to be disgusted by you. But some people will be really, really, really into you, including my girlfriend, who it turns out had a thing for nerds. Uh, So I'm glad that I played up who I was. So that's definitely uh, an important trick in dating. So you can let your freak flag fly, as you say, or, or, or lean into whatever makes you, you know, polarizing. But you also say asking a lot of people out, right? Like uh, that volume matters. There's this great example of this guy who actually, I think, wrote a bot to, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to, yeah. to ask a, a gazillion people out and maybe particularly people whose, whose profiles resemble your own. They've done studies. What happens when the least desirable people on a, a site send a message to the most desirable people. So they actually had people measure the attractiveness of photos. What happens when a one asks a 10 out, a, a, a male one asks a female 10 out. And before I had seen the data, I would have said, this is a one in a million, a one in a billion, you know, this, 
the stars have to align perfectly. There's no way a one's going to hear back from a 10. And the number seems to be more like 14% and even and much higher for a, a, a lower ranked woman asking a higher ranked man. They didn't do it for gay couples. So we don't know the data on that. And another study converges on similar areas. It, it may be a little low, 14%, maybe a little bit lower than that. But if you have a 14% chance of getting a response, if you message 30 people, the math says you have more than a 98% chance of getting a response. So the numbers, if you have, and, and if, even if it's lower, if you have a one in f- a 20 chance, if you ask enough people out, the chances of getting all no's just become astronomically low. You know, dating really is, I think the data suggests, a, a, a numbers game. And, and partly it goes to the idea of being polarizing, that there is enough variation in what people are looking for. So you just kind of got to keep trying until you find your market. Absolutely. Yeah. 15% is not, is not zero for sure. It's not zero. <laughs> it, it, it's not zero. And, and yeah. And, and the other thing is speaking of people similar to yourself. Yeah. There is a pretty strong bias, similarity bias, uh, the most kind of funny, amusing, evidence for similarity bias is people are 14% more likely to match with someone who shares their initials, which is like totally, ins- yeah, it's totally <laughs> insane. Right? Like, like it's, it's so crazy. Yeah. That's very funny. But, but it does show that it, you should ask everybody you're attracted out. And if someone is a, has a lot in common with you, if they share your initials, definitely ask them out. Right. Exactly. I don't, you know, that if, if you're writing a bot uh, to scrape the dating sites, if you want, want to look for the same initials. But apparently, people really like themselves attracted to people with their own initials. But you know, one one possible interpretation of the success that people have who are leaning into their own nerdiness or or, or shaving their heads or, or, or purple hair and funky glasses. To, to me is is that confidence is kind of an aphrodisiac, right? Like people are attracted to confidence. And it, it also strikes me that that kind of expression of personality, as well as the act of asking a lot of people out, is also an expression of confidence. I mean, that could be another variable. I, I think that's, I think there's a lot of truth to that as well. We, we yeah, it, it, it's hard. Sometimes, you know, you in data analysis, you, uh, as Rumsfeld said, you go to war with the army you got, not the army you want. Yeah, and, sure. you know, you don't always have every variable. You don't have a variable for confidence. You don't necessarily, it's it's a little hard to disentangle exactly what's going on. Uh, but I, I, I'm i sure confidence is very attractive. It's part of the story. Well, moving on to what makes for a successful marriage or a successful yeah. long-term coupling, which is ostensibly what people are looking for when they're out there on dating sites. You, you, you talk about this really interesting study by Samantha Joel, who gathered this huge data set, I think over 11,000 couples, yeah. to find out what predicts successful relationships. W- what did she find out? Yeah, it was uh, Joel and 85 other scientists, more than 11,000 couples, more than 100 variables on every couple. And the major lesson, the biggest lesson in the, in the data is it's surprisingly hard to predict romantic happiness with the traits of a, of two people in that relationship. So uh, if you're predicting whether two people are going to be happy together, it's not like predicting the weather tomorrow. It's more like predicting the weather three, four weeks down the road. They're kind of chaotic systems. I actually talked to one of the authors on the paper, and he said he's moving to to an idea that maybe relationships are similar to the weather, chaotic systems where slight changes in initial conditions can take things in horrible directions uh, or spectacular directions. So it, 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 that was kind of the number one lesson. But then within that, the biggest predictor by far of increasing your odds of being happy in your romantic relationship is being happy outside your romantic relationship. So if you generally like life, you're going to be be happy in your relationship as well. Uh, so there's a lot of truth to the idea you should work on yourself first before you look for someone else to make you happy. And then about the other person, if there's anything that increases the odds of being happy with that person, it's psychological traits, things like having a secure attachment style, growth mindset, conscientiousness, satisfaction with life, uh, all these stupid psychological quizzes that I hate taking. They seem to be the only things that predict romantic uh, happiness in a partner. So interesting. And and you point out that almost everything that people value in the dating market turns out to be totally irrelevant 
to successful relationships, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so that the absence of a data signal there is itself a signal, right? That we can learn from the fact that all these things, like I, I happen to be taller than average. It's interesting to learn that may have been a tailwind in my dating experience over the years. But I think my wife would say that my height has not necessarily resulted in increased marital happiness. <laughs> not that not that she's not delighted with me, Seth, as a as a mate. But the point here would be that we chase these shiny characteristics when we're in the dating market that, as it turns out, don't have any correlation with what makes us happy. Yeah, I mean, in the in the long term, uh, Lo, my friend Logan Yuri wrote a great book on this, How to Not Die Alone as well. Mm. And, uh, you know, some of the difference between what we look for in dating markets and what predicts long-term happiness is due to some people on dating markets aren't, uh, on dating sites aren't looking for long-term relationships. They're looking for short-term liaisons. Sure, sure. And maybe when you're, you know, just in a short-term sexual relationship, dating someone of the right height or who's beautiful or has a really cool job does make it more exciting, more enthralling. But I think it's overwhelmingly clear in the data that most of us are looking for long-term romantic happiness in all the wrong ways. Uh, and many of us are, are just constantly tricked by, you know, beautiful people and tall people and people who share our initials. Uh, you know, I don't think someone five years, six years down the line is going to be like, you know, my partner never does any chores and he's always a grouch or she's always a grouch. But, you know, we share the, the initials. That's so cool. Uh, you know, th these things wear off pretty fast. Uh, and and anybody be wise. You know, I kind of point out that the dating market is an inefficient market, very similar to the baseball market, actually. It's kind of interesting because if you remember Moneyball, one of the keys, the Oakland A's who started the Moneyball revolution took advantage of the fact that these players who didn't look like ball players yes, right, right. could be just as good. So. Yeah. And I think in dating, there's kind of a similar phenomenon where, you know, everybody's competing for the people who look like, who trick us into thinking they're going to be great partners, but aren't great partners. And you can, if you can get over that a little bit, you'll have more success. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, Seth explains why most of the decisions you make as a parent don't matter at all, except for one. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. Well, turning to parenting, Seth, this was a fascinating section for me because as I mentioned, I've got, I've got three boys. I found it both slightly disconcerting, but at the same time, wonderfully liberating to learn that most of what we do as parents doesn't really matter. <laughs> right? yeah. That's that's yeah. the first takeaway from the data, right? Is, am I getting that right? Yeah, it's totally right. There are a couple of books and written on this. There's one by Brian Kaplan, Judith Rich Harris. And at, each time I read that, I'm like, wow, that's amazing. But it's pretty convincing that the evidence from adoptions or uh, twin mm -hmm. studies yeah. kind of show that the overall effects of your parents, the parents aren't that much. What really matters a lot is nature genetics. So 
if you want your kid to be really smart, the best thing you do is mate with a really smart person rather than read them a thousand books. Uh, that's kind of a tiny effect. That That is kind of the first lesson in the data on parenting that, you know, it, we worry so much about these things that yeah. don't seem to matter so much. Well, this, this study that Raj Chetty did, the study of siblings who moved, it was totally fascinating. I thought a great example of how to use big data creatively uh, to gain insight into human behavior. Could, could you tell us about that study? I basically had finished the chapter. I'm just like on parenting and I'm like, okay, all I need to say is that everything you do as a parent doesn't really matter that much. I mean, if you might have 8,000 decisions as a parent, and if the best evidence is a great parent is going to, let's say, improve a child's outcome by 20% or something, divide 20 by 8,000, and each decision is just minuscule in how much it's going to affect things. So, so really just chill out, you know, do, do what you think is about right. And I, I was done with the chapter, and then I remembered this researcher, a former professor of mine, Raj Chetty, and some other researchers, where they studied the entire universe of taxpayers, and they they had this huge data set, tens of millions of people, and they wanted to measure how much the neighborhood uh, a child grows up in influences how they turn out. And they did this very clever thing comparing families that moved at a certain age. So one kid, let's say, had 10 years in one ta- town, and another kid had no years in that town or, or, f- or fewer years in that town, what happens? How do the kids turn out? And by comparing the same kids from the same family, you kind of control for genetics and parenting and other factors. And they found the neighborhood has a surprisingly big effect. Living in certain neighborhoods consistently give kids an edge on, you know, anything they could measure in tax data. So uh, income or going to college or marrying a certain age. Again, it doesn't measure everything. We'd love if they could measure character and other other factors that matter. But so I, I kind of was thinking about this. I'm like, well, what that means is that that decision seems to be the really important one. The neighborhood you raise your kids in seems to matter a lot, even if everything else matters little. And then they tried to say, okay, what is it about these great neighborhoods where kids are dominating? You know, mm-hmm. kids who grew up there are dominating. And they found all these random variables like adults returned their census forms was a big predictor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, interesting. What, yeah, like uh, who, who even thinks about that? And it was kind of having responsible adults. Uh, there's, I think, pretty good evidence from that research that adult role models, the adult you're exposing your kids to, can be really important in how they turn out. Little girls who move to neighborhoods with lots of female scientists are much more likely to become scientists when they grow up. So I kind of took this as you can outsource parenting a little bit, (laughs) like things you tell your kids half the time, they'll just think you're an idiot and don't know what you're talking about and do the exact opposite of what you say. But if you expose your kids to people who you want them to turn out like, they'll probably think those people are pretty cool and they may very well follow those role models. And, and, And parents are sometimes not cool. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Like, like, you know, and so there's a, you know, and the parents are also this sort of force of judgment and, you know, putting pressure on the kids. And so the kids, it's, it's, the kids, kids are much more likely to be maybe inspired by the example of other people. They also have more options in a, in a diversified, like sort of marketplace of mentors in a, in a whole community. I mean, actually, what one serious you know note I made to myself reading this section of the book is that I actually want to set up time for my kids to talk with my friends about their career paths, you know, about what they do. Because I because I thought to myself like I'm not sure, you know, do my kids know how interesting and cool all these friends are? And like Seth, if you're free, I might set you up to chat with my kids no, about your. No, I'm just I'm just thinking <laughs> if your friend if your friends listen to this episode and they're not invited to this session. They're going to know you don't think you want your kids to turn out like that. <laughs> you got to be very careful now. I know. Well, if, if you have some extra time, I'd love to, you know, there, there might be uh, a- I make the cut. Uh, uh, yeah, a future in data science for them. I think, I think you know, your journey would be might be very interesting. But, you know, is, is this empowering and exciting information or is it discouraging? Because we, we had Ray Dalio, the, the great hedge fund manager on the show recently, and he talked about how in Greenwich, Connecticut, you know, the median house price is two and a half million bucks. Public schools are great. Bridgeport, Connecticut, 15 miles away, median price is something like 275,000. Public schools are not so good. And probably that's going to correlate somewhat, I would guess, with like, you know, two family households and census forms returns, although 
I'm not great at returning census forms, so I don't, I don't know. But you know, I, and I wonder whether this predictive power of neighborhoods is a variable that reduces class mobility or kind of gets people stuck, right? Because it's not easy to move from Bridgeport to Greenwich, you know. But it, when you look at these different neighborhoods, like, is it does this look to you like an opportunity for for families who are thinking about the outcome for their kids, or or is this more like something we need to worry about? It's definitely, it is correlated with, you know, money and low poverty rates and things like that. So there definitely are, you know, people who have rougher backgrounds, parents with lower income are going to end up on average in worse neighborhoods, but it's not perfectly correlated there. It's, it's, you know, going back to Moneyball, it's another inefficient market. And Chetty has even found that it's only weakly correlated with rents in an area. So there are pretty big inefficiencies. Interesting. And I think interestingly, uh, one of the reasons it's long been known that immigrants do really well in the United States, kids of immigrants do really well in the United States. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, we, we've long thought that it has to do with the dry, the immigrant drive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and there does seem to be something to that, but they've actually shown that a big part of the success of immigrants is compared to similar families of their income they tend to raise their kids in better neighborhoods by these these metrics. Interesting. So, you know, immigrants are more likely to be around good adult role models and probably, you know, cities with a lot of good ideas in them and a lot of opportunity in them. Uh, so I think that shows that it's not just immigrants aren't coming here with great, you know, wealth, but they are drawn to these maybe for for whatever reason, drawn to neighborhoods that are better for their kids. And non-immigrants can probably utilize those lessons as well. Right, right, right. There, there's some affordable neighborhoods where you do that do index highly, and, it, and it's so it's empowering to be aware of, of this of this kind of data. And I, I think just generally the idea of utilizing adult role models. It's hard to think there's any neighborhood where there aren't great adult role models. And exactly, you know, I think even LeBron James, you know, grew up in a very tough environment, single mother, Akron, Ohio, and I think was eventually taken in by a, a really good family there or something. So there, there, oh, there, there's no neighborhood without uh, adults that you can use to your advantage in helping your kid. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, no, it's, it's so interesting. Let's talk about how to be successful. So it turns out there are a bunch of stories we tell ourselves about what success looks like. And very often those stories are not accurate. Right. I mean, I, I'm a I'm a serial entrepreneur. Seth. this is uh, Next Big Idea Club is my fourth company. So so th- this section on the characteristics of successful entrepreneurs, I found totally riveting. You say there are three myths debunked by the data, the advantages of youth, outsider's edge and the power of the marginal. Um, so so what is this myth of the successful entrepreneur and what's what's the reality? Speaking of leaning into my nerdiness, I think this was one of my nerdier chapters because I talk about something called the counter counterintuitive idea. I love this. Yeah. Which is there are these myths about entrepreneurial success that a lot of people believe, but when you think about it, don't make a whole lot of sense. And the data helps us correct these myths. So the myth of youth, uh, you know, which I talked about, we talked about earlier, uh, the idea of, a you know, Mark Zuckerberg, 19, when he founded Facebook, Steve Jobs, 19, when he founded Apple, uh, Bill Gates, I think 20 when he founded Microsoft, you know, people that, that being young is an advantage, totally not true in the data. Again, the odds of success increase to the age of 60 being an outsider, uh, David Epstein, uh, wrote an excellent book range. Yeah. But one chapter, he, he talks about the outsider's edge. If you're too close to a field, you're going to be stuck in the old ways and you're not gonna be able to think of a creative solution to a problem. Totally not true in the data. The closer inside you are to a field, the higher your odds of success. I mean, a soap manufacturer is going to have a much higher success uh, chance of creating a successful soap manufacturing business than a shampoo manufacturer. <laughs> like just you want to be as close as possible to the field. And then uh, Power of the Marginal is an essay by Paul Graham, who I generally love and found find very provocative that it's an advantage to be unsuccessful, to be, so you're not weighed down by eminence when you're creating a business. Totally untrue in the data. Uh, the most successful entrepreneurs earned to the 99.9th percentile of income before they started their business. So when you end up, there's kind of a formula for entrepreneurial success. You spend many years kind of mastering a field, uh, a very narrow field, 
prove your worth in that field and then start your business when you're ready in that field where you have all this expertise. And I just think it's useful to keep that in mind because the media is just flooding yeah. us with counterexamples yeah. and just staring at those charts. You're just like, okay, it's really not that not as complicated as, as we or you know, it, it's very clear and simple uh, when you look at the data. It's interesting. And, and you point out that stories that the media is attracted to, we have a bias towards those stories. And those stories are often the counterintuitive stories, right? So that's like, oh, the outsider comes in and with no background, you know, uh, revolutionizes this field. We're attracted to those stories. And, and the, the counter counterintuitive point is that, well, yes, actually spending a decade developing deep <laughs> expertise on uh, you know, in, in the market sector where you plan to build a business, that's actually really useful, <laughs> right? I mean, that's, it, it, it should be totally obvious. It should be totally obvious. And that's one of the things I did with this book. The first question everybody asks when you write a book, not you, thank, th thanks Rufus, but one of the first questions everybody asks is, what were the three most shocking things you found? Right, right, right. And everybody wants, you know, shocking, shocking, shocking. And that's why we've had, there have all been all these books that have been debunked. I, I tried to avoid that pressure in writing this book and really just say whatever the data said. Sometimes it is legitimately surprising. Yeah, and sometimes yeah. it's just kind of obvious. And I didn't care whether it was surprising or obvious, just every time, here's the data. Presented like a good data scientist. So I've I've always been really interested in the role of luck in in business and and this is something you address in a section of the book and you quote you know Sam Altman who succeeded Paul Graham who you just referenced as the, yeah, yeah. As the CEO of Y Combinator described the formula for success I think this is in a Stanford uh, address that uh, the idea times the product times the execution times the team times luck where luck is a random number between one and 10,000, this is the formula for success. It, it, he seems to be suggesting and picking a number between one and 10,000 that luck is a pretty big variable here, but you seem to come out on the other side. Yeah, there, there's one study that I thought was pretty solid from uh, researchers Collins and Hanson. I think it was their book, yeah. Too Great. Yeah. They looked at a whole bunch of businesses, some of which had been very successful, some of which hadn't been as successful. And they tried to go through their entire, the entire histories of the business and say, how many lucky breaks did they have? And, you know, it, it's, it's obviously not a perfect study. How do you define a lucky break? You know, it's a little squishy, but I think their general point was that the successful business, the unsuccessful businesses had on average the same number of lucky breaks and the successful businesses just did a much better job at capitalizing on their lucky breaks. Uh, and I think there's a lot of truth to that. You know, one of the ways to think about this, maybe mathematically, is suppose over the course of your lifetime, you never had a lucky break. Yeah. You never met a person who could help you at the right time. Uh, you never read a, a, a section in a book that was just what you needed at that moment. You never, at some point, were sitting next to someone on an airplane who was, you know, shared the same initials as you or, or, or was generally perfect for you or whatever, you'd be the unluckiest human being in history. <laughs> like over the course of a life, you're supposed to have lucky breaks. So I think there is some sense in which the lucky ones in business, in art, in romance, take advantage of lucky breaks. And the other thing about luck is you can increase your chances of getting a lucky break. Uh, and we see that I talk about a lot in the art world, yeah. which is an area where there's a lot of luck, how successful artists tended to hack luck in their favor, basically. Well, and as you point out with the art world, you seem to be suggesting that abstract art might not be a complete meritocracy. <laughs> that maybe, yeah. You seem to be calling it the question of the meritocratic nature of the art world. But I, I think it, it it probably would be fair to say that that some you know areas, some some categories of work involve more luck than others. Maybe acting or art, there's more susceptibility to luck. But it also strikes me, and maybe that we'll have more data in the future, and this could play into one of your next books, that the sequencing of luck throughout, let's say, a career is a relevant factor. When you're in a field within which, if you get an early lucky break, uh, and then the benefits of that luck compound like you know, every year for decades, uh, that that potentially can drive a large outcome. 
What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I don't disagree, but I think there's also an element of taking advantage of the luck you have. Yeah. Mark Zuckerberg's roommate, Dustin Moskovitz, when he heard that of Zuckerberg's idea, he convinced Zuckerberg to make him a co-founder, even though he had no coding background. And he furiously taught himself how to code and then moved with Zuckerberg to Palo Alto, dropping out of Harvard to help create this business. And that was a huge early luck break that eventually turned to now he's co-founder of Asana, another huge company. He's created a, an amazing charity, Good Ventures, yeah. and his life is completely set. But how many people in that situation would have not done that? Would have been, well, I don't know how to code. I'm not yeah. you know, prepared to be to get in on this project. Good luck. And I think Zuckerberg had another roommate who uh, didn't make a, the same decision. So really capitalizing on, on these advantages, particularly when they come early, is very important. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. What, one of my observations is that we have, that there are a lot of opportunities in life for both virtuous cycles of success begetting success and and vicious cycles, right? <laughs> of, of, yeah. You got discouraged and you, you know, and you don't do the next thing. And actually this, the, this factor of luck helps support the case for a bias for action, which recurs in the book as a, uh, you know, as a good idea. Basically, like, insofar as there's a certain amount of luck involved, you, you, you need to roll the dice a lot of times. The, the, the more often you roll the dice, the more that statistically the lucky probabilities kind of flatten out and you, you're, you're gonna get your shot, as they say. I, and also, this is a real takeaway, I think, in your book, that if you can, people will pay you to learn what you need to learn to start the company you wanna start in the future, right? Yes. <laughs> Which is called working for someone else and developing expertise in the field, that this is the more typical path. Um, well, I, you know, I think it's also really interesting to look at you know, your analysis of what kinds of businesses we should start. And this, is, you know, this came up in our opening exchanges, this question of like, you know, people don't look at probabilities of success. Like yeah. everybody's like, oh, I want to start a restaurant because that sort of seems like a fun thing to do. And, it, you know, we have a great experience as patrons of restaurants, as customers in restaurants. So we think, oh, it'd be great to be in restaurants all the time, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah. It, but it's, it, it feels like there may be an inverse relationship between how appealing a given business is to start from the outside and the probability of success, because it's sort of a supply and demand problem. If everybody wants to start a restaurant, your odds are going to be small. That's true. And there is a study on the how quickly businesses fold. And the quickest business, the site's a bit old, back when record stores existed. It was a 2014 study. Mm -hmm. But record stores were the quickest, single quickest business to go out of, you know, to, to fold fast. It's like 2.75 years, the average record store lasted and uh, clothing stores and toy stores and other, you know, makeup stores, anything that was sexy kind of was very quick to fold. But there are so some boring businesses that also kind of suck. Uh, so there's a, there's a study, uh, Capitalist in the 21st Century, a 2019 study of the entire universe of taxpayers. How many people are in the top 1% making $400,000 a year, top 0.1% making about $1.6 million per year? And you actually see there are only a small number of businesses that really allow a large percent of people to enter the top 0.1%, similarly the top 1%. Uh, some of them are kind of obvious, real estate, investing. Uh, we kind of know a lot of people are getting rich through real estate investing. Some of them may be a little bit more surprising depending on your knowledge. Uh, auto dealership is a great business. Right, right. Beverage distribution is a great business. Market research seems to be a great business. And, and if you kind of look at the pattern, it has something to do with the existence of local monopolies. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's actually clearest in auto dealerships where auto dealerships are basically legally protected local monopolies. The, the car companies aren't allowed to deal their cars themselves, though Tesla is challenging this a bit now. And there are laws about how many dealerships can be set up in one particular region. So basically the Toyota dealer in a given region is, is the only one allowed to deal those cars. And that's a really good situation to be in from a business perspective because you can't get hit by price competition. So about 20% of auto dealerships have an owner in the top 0.1% making more than $1.6 million per year. Oh. Auto repair shops, the number is less than 1%. Oh, interesting, interesting, right? If you own an auto repair shop, there's nothing preventing someone from 
if you're making tons of money, someone could just bring a, a start their own auto repair shop right next to you, charge a lower price, advertise on Google, undercut you on price, and you're in and, and steal all your business. So you basically all your profits will go to advertisement and lowering prices. So I think anybody starting a business should have to first explain why auto repair shops and auto dealerships are such offer such different odds of success. Because it's not like one offers a better service, uh, one is more difficult, one requires more education. It's just because one allows the possibility of local monopoly. It's so interesting. Yeah. So you say own your own business, avoid ruthless price competition, uh, and start a business that can't be dominated by a, a big global player. And, and, and you end up suggesting, we'll, 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 we'll let listeners buy a copy of Don't Trust Your Gut to find all the juicy details of how to, of how to create a successful business. But one note would be uh, market research. Consider getting into uh, starting a market research firm, right? That's a good one. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. There's one thing we all know money can't buy, happiness. Well, sort of. Seth explains after the break. A few years ago, Tony Fidel, one of the creators of the iPhone, said, I wake up in cold sweats every so often thinking, what did we bring into this world? Since then, he's also shared an interesting analogy. He said, the iPhone is like a refrigerator. If you're eating the wrong food, don't blame the fridge. Blame the person who puts food in the fridge. That's you. So the question is, what do you have on your iPhone? Is it healthy food or unhealthy food? As it happens, we at the Next Big Idea Club have spent the last year building an app that delivers healthy food for your brain. It's called the Next Big Idea app, and we love it. We use it every day. It's a labor of love. We select the most important new books and invite the authors, these are legendary, world-famous authors, to distill their books down to 12 minutes of audio and four minutes of text. We call these book bites, superfood for your brain. We publish a new one every day. A lot of media today is like processed food, regurgitated third hand. The Next Big Idea app delivers the most important new ideas unadulterated from the world's leading thinkers, superfood. Our book bites are appetizers, a great way to sample new ideas when you're ready for an entree. The Next Big Idea app also features beautiful video e-courses created from the best eight books every year, selected by our four legendary curators, Adam Grant, Susan Cain, Malcolm Gladwell, and Daniel Pink. And for dessert, how about an ad-free version of this podcast? Pause this episode, click on the App Store, and search for Next Big Idea. Seriously, I don't mind waiting. See? How easy was that? If you enjoyed this podcast, you will love the app. There's no better way to get smart fast. Download the Next Big Idea app right now. Well, let's turn to, to a topic of universal interest, human happiness. You know, I was interested to read in your book that GDP has doubled in the last 50 years. We have all these wonderful technologies that now make it easy to learn and communicate, but we're no happier, right? In 1972, 30% of Americans described themselves as very happy. And today, 50 years later, right about the same number, right? So, but maybe big data can help make us happier. Uh, I'm not sure I would have predicted this, but the mappiness study is just so, so interesting. You want to tell us about that? Yes, this is two uh, British economists, Susanna Murado and George McCarran. And they had kind of this great insight that because of smartphones, we could do these real cool studies on happiness where you could just ping people and ask them a bunch of questions. So what are you doing? Who are you with? And how happy are you? And they built this data set, more than 60,000 people, more than 3 million happiness points. And they could do all these amazing studies that I thought were really, really uh, convincing on kind of what tends to make people happy. When I was researching the happiness section, I read all these studies and many of the studies, even studies that have been featured in popular books and are, are kind of world famous and a lot of people may have heard of. I dug deeply into the studies and I'm, I'm kind of like, these aren't that convincing. Uh, you basically just asked a bunch of your students, what makes you happy? You know, I, I just wasn't convinced, but this mappiness project just over and over again, I'm like, yeah, that is convincing to the point I've made some big changes in my life based on what that project found. 
That's so interesting. Well, first of all, talk about the methodology, like th- th- this random prompting of people. It's interesting that that would yield us much more accurate information about what makes people happy than if you ask them, you know, <laughs> what, what, you know, what made you happy last week? And I guess the argument would be that we tell ourselves stories about what it is that makes us happy. And we're not really very good at kind of observing and analyzing in the moment. I, I mean, I guess it's precisely in the moments when we are most happy, probably, that we're, we're in a flow state and we're less likely to actually be effectively observing what is making us happy, <laughs> right? For exactly. And there are all these biases. Uh, Danny Kahneman has found like the peak yeah. end rule that we tend to judge the happiness of an experience. So you go on vacation, your your memory of how good that vacation was tends to be the best moments and then how it ended. But that's only a small part of the vacation. Uh, so there are, there are all these biases in in looking back at our happiness that probably give a we're all walking around a little blind about what actually makes us happy. Yeah. Interesting. But, but if you, but yeah, ping people in the moment and you get just a, a lot more information. So 3 million data points from this mappiness study and you have, uh, you've changed your own life decision, Seth, based on this information. I, I think we better lead with the number one activity that makes people <laughs> yeah, yeah. the most happy. You want to, you want to share with the yeah. listeners? Stuff? So it is, uh, it's, it's, as they put it, intimacy making love. So uh, sex uh, is the happiest activity, which has actually been confirmed by three different projects. So, uh, you know, I, I kind of imagine these jocks making fun of these nerds, like all of them are <laughs> applying for grants, coding these apps, and they're kind of saying, you know, while we were busy, while while you guys were spending months determining that sex is the happiest activity, we were busy, you know, having sex. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, it is it it does come come as as yeah. number one activity, which initially I thought was kind of amusing. I because when you think about it, you know, are people? I I'm, I, I thought about the happiness methodology. I'm like, wait, people are stopping having sex to uh, to to answer this happiness survey, but. Uh, it's, it's not really true because the mappiness survey, you're allowed to say what you're doing when you are pinged for up to 60 minutes after the ping actually occurs. Uh, so it's not like everybody was in the middle of sex taking a break and telling mappiness how, how it's going. Well, with, with 3 million survey responses, I'm sure there was at least one that was like, wait, hang on one second, honey. Wait, hang yeah, on. Yeah. I've got to just got yeah. a ping. Okay. A hundred <laughs> yeah. out of a hundred. I'm really happy right now. Now, where are we? Yeah, <laughs> okay. So listeners, this is what we call an actionable piece of data, right? We yeah. really all need to get out there and have more sex for the good of human happiness. And, <laughs> and, and unfortunately, like Americans are having less sex, right? There's a lot of headlines to that effect. Last, I think last few decades, like this, people are having less sex, which is uh, not good for the state of human happiness. But yeah, so how else, Seth, have you changed your own behavior based on the happiness data? One of the big lessons for me was the value of activity. So if you look at the leisure activities that score really, really high, uh, they tend to require some energy, uh, you know, sex, uh, going to a museum, uh, going to a show, exercise athletics, uh, hunting and fishing, taking a hike, taking a walk. They're things that require some startup energy. And then you look at the leisure activities that score very low, browsing the internet, watching TV, reading, which I hate to say as an author. Uh, <laughs> I was surprised. Uh, I was surprised by that. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. iPhone games, you know, they're, they're the types of things that just kind of, they feel easy. Someone point, someone read my book and he, he said a line that maybe I should have included that there's a difference between a comfortable activity and an enjoyable activity. Mm, yeah. So I think a lot of times we're tricked by comfort and ease. And, you know, everybody knows the feeling your friends invited you to, you know, go out and, you know, hang out and it's 8 PM and you're feeling tired and there's something you want to watch on TV. And should I just cancel, you know, tell them I have COVID or something. <laughs> and I think the mappiness data tells us that that's a trap we're all falling into the trap of doing something that's easy that doesn't require a lot of energy. But when you look at, you know, people pings doing these activities, resting, relaxing, uh, they're, they're, they tend to say they're actually in the moment, not very happy. One section that's particularly interesting is 
when people are asked what they think make people happy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and when you compare that to the actual results of the Mappiness Project, we can see the most underrated activities and the most overrated activities. So, he, yeah. so here are the most underrated activities. Exhibition museum library. So people love going to museums. I, I keep telling my family this, trying to get them to the Met. So that's I'm happy to have that one. Sports running exercise. Now, he, here I'm I, I'm tempted to think, Seth, that that sports is really lifting up the running. Because for me, I love playing racket sports, but running for me is less much less fun. But I don't know. Um, now drinking alcohol. So this this was actually probably controversial, right? I mean, you had you had to. I had to. I just presented the data. I didn't want to. You know, obviously alcohol is very dangerous, but it is interesting. Maybe because the pre the press around act alcohol for good reason can be so negative. Yeah. That really it is uh, a happy activity. Of course, there's probably some noise in the estimates because the the tipsy people may be you know hard to get the number exactly right. They may be five <laughs> above or five yeah. five below. Yeah. Yeah, but and this was yeah. So, so on, on a list that you have here of forty activities from providing the most happiness to the least, drinking alcohol is number eleven, and then gardening and shopping errands. So that that was a surprise one for me. Although I, I although you're kind of walking and interacting with the world when you're shopping and doing it, things. it may be you know I think you're right. The sports running exercise, you know, the Mappiness Project was so revolutionary and groundbreaking, and I yeah. I want to just say positive things about it because you know I think the scholars who did it did a great service to the world but if i had one correction sometimes they lump in activities that could be very different and maybe shopping and errands some people really love uh going to you know a clothing store and buying something but they don't like you know doing an errands going grocery shopping maybe uh you know it's not a perfect study sometimes they do lump in things that that you know that Right, can, uh, right, right, uh, right. Maybe may give score very different. It, it'll be interesting. Yeah, yeah, but this is certainly an area where we'll we'll enjoy seeing more and larger data sets come in that we can tease apart the nuances. So another surprise was, I mean, maybe this won't be a surprise to many people, but how low working, working slash studying was near the bottom. I mean, the only thing, the only thing worse than working apparently is being sick and bad. Right, <laughs> and that's kind of depressing, isn't it? I mean, for the you know, for our species as a whole, because we spend like 40, 50, 60 hours a week working, so it's kind of heartbreaking that for most people, that really is 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 decreasing your happiness unless you work with your friends, right? I thought that was fantastic. yeah, yeah, yeah. It was interesting. I was shocked that work scored so low. Yeah, but when we asked people. Uh, so that was a project Spencer Greenberg and I did where we asked people to rank the happiness activities. They ranked work exactly correctly, the set right right uh, above sick in bed, if I'm remembering correctly. So uh, maybe it's because I've been in these circles that have glorified work uh, that the average person doesn't have as positive a view. They kind of know that work sucks. Uh, but yeah, but you know, when you actually look, you can dig deeper into the data. Uh, McCarran did this in a study with uh, Alex Bryson. And they found that people who are working with their friends, uh, they get a big boost. And that's just being with your friends mm, or a romantic yeah, partner. Yeah, yeah. Any activity gets an enormous boost with your friends. Uh, it's just so important to our happiness. And another trap of modern life is that we we find it difficult to carve out time to spend with our friends. And it's yeah. just so important from a happiness perspective. And that's kind of a change I've, I've tried to make is is spend more time with your friends and and your romantic partner. Yeah, no, that's that really is one of the big takeaways, right? We all should we all need to hang out with our friends more, and ideally we'd we'd hang out with our friends next to bodies of water while sipping some <laughs> champagne because yeah. the because uh, <laughs> uh, actually it's, this was fascinating that that uh, nature makes us happy, but in these di <laughs> these different categories of natural environments. The number one, by a large margin, is marine and coastal margins, which after you looked it up, turned out to be basically be, being by the ocean or, or yeah, probably yeah. any large body of water. All these studies, it's like we're, you, you said at the beginning, we're in the early innings of, of data analysis. Yeah. And it'd be so interesting to break this down. You know, now I take walks by the river based mm -hmm. on the Mappiness Project. I live in New York City, so I don't have a, an, an ocean to go to. I have the you know Hudson River, the East River. I take my walks by the river. But am I getting the same boost? Does it matter the the water, the body of water? I'd love to see more on that. But uh, it was a very convincing study 
McCarran and Murado, this the value of, of nature, particularly water. And there are a whole bunch of studies. It's really, there's increasing evidence. They've actually followed people on Twitter and you can see people's G, uh, you know, based on their GPS, are they in a park? And they find that when you're in a park, for the hours after you're in a park, your tweets get happier. Just very convincing evidence that nature right, right. is is gives gives us a happiness boost. And uh, I, I think we underestimate the happy the pleasure of nature at our own peril, and speak about a danger of modern life as our GDP is rising. Uh, it's getting harder and harder to carve out time to spend in nature. And how about Seth making money? Should we um, apply ourselves to making some money? Is that uh, I, obviously this is contentious, right? And there've been it's always a moving target. How much you know? What's the you know? It used to be the rule of thumb was oh, up to seventy five thousand dollars of income, money does make you happier. Beyond that, it's useless. But I think it's a bit more nuanced than that. Yeah, I think there there was this initial idea. They've now done a study a similar to the Mappiness Project. Track Your Happiness has also used cell phones and ping people. And they had a data set of, I think, 1.7 million people. And they found that there's no point at which money stops giving you happiness, but it gives you diminishing happiness. So basically, you have to keep doubling your income to get the same boost. So going from 75000 to 150000 has the same effect of going from 150000 to 300000 has the same effect going 300000 to 600000 600000 1.2 million. Uh, there is some evidence that you get an additional happiness boost when your net worth crosses $8 million. And I think one of the reasons for this is if you look at the happiness activity chart yeah. of happiness, yeah. the bottom of the chart is just filled with annoying things you have to do in modern life you know, chores and cooking and, you know, fixing things around the house. And I think once your net worth hits $8 million, you kind of stop having to do those things. Uh, you really can just have, uh, you know, servants who are, uh, you know, cleaning and cooking and doing all your chores. And that probably does help with happiness a bit. But so money is a path to happiness. But it's not, it's it's only one path and it doesn't give quite the boost that some other things give. You know, even the net worth of $8 million, it gives about half the happiness boost of being married. And being married is probably a lot easier than getting your net worth to $8 million. So so it, it matters. It just doesn't, it's, it's very hard because everybody wants money and it doesn't matter that much. Right. Uh, but yeah. You know, it matters enough. And the good thing about Don't Trust Your Gut is I have a whole chapter telling you how to get it. So there you are. That's right. That's right. You follow, follow the instructions and you'll have a much <laughs> yeah. higher probability. If you build a market research firm or yeah. start a car dealership, you're going to be all set. I, I think I might land us here with the last line of your book, having opened with the first line. You say the data-driven answer to life is as follows. Be with your love on an 80-degree day overlooking a beautiful body of water having sex. Uh, so wise data-supported words <laughs> from Seth Stevens-Davidowitz. Have you tried this, Seth? Have you have you tried that uh, formula yet? I did. As soon as I finished the book, I took a Caribbean vacation with my girlfriend. And we should have. We were thinking about taking a picture, you know, not obviously a, a PG fic, uh, picture, <laughs> saying that I was following the advice of the book, but we didn't, we, we did, we didn't do that. But you look at all the charts all the happiness charts, you know, all from the Mappiness Project, and they basically all converge on sex on a beach. <laughs> uh, if you take the number one of every activity, of the happiness activity chart, number one is sex. The happiness people chart, number one is romantic partner. Happiness weather chart, 80 degrees and sunny. And happiness location chart, uh, marine and coastal margin. It's all. It all comes to sex on a beach, which is the name of a cocktail. Uh, well chosen. Although some people say the sand is is not optimal for, okay, for the, sex but, near a beach. Near a I beach, guess. maybe sex, near sex overlooking. Yeah, it's, sex overlooking <laughs> a beach. That doesn't have the same ring for a cocktail, right? I agree. I agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, sex, sex on the beach. We'll go with that. Thank you, Seth Stevens, the Venezuelans, for taking time out of your writing and teaching and watching the Mets to be with us today. We so enjoyed it. Thanks so much for having me, Rufus.
That was Seth Stevens Davidowitz, author of Don't Trust Your Gut. You can buy a copy in the Next Big Idea app. And while you're there, check out Seth's Book Bite, where he summarizes the book's five key insights in 15 minutes. Download the Next Big Idea app today by following the link in the episode notes or searching for Next Big Idea in your app store. If you like today's episode, there are quite a few others you're likely to enjoy because we love using data and analytics to get smarter about our lives. That's what we do at Next Big Idea. You'd probably like our conversations with Ray Dalio about the probability of civil war and the collapse of the US empire. Or if you're looking for something a little more uplifting, how about our conversation with Catherine Price recently about how and why you should have more fun or with Dan Pink about the power of regret what we can learn from a huge data set on the most common human regrets, which he calls a negative image of the good life. You can listen to them now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Next Big Idea app, or wherever you get your pods. So right now, you're probably wondering, what exactly is going on at the Next Big Idea world headquarters? What exactly are Rufus and Caleb up to when they're not working on this podcast? Well, Caleb, do you want to share the latest news from the Next Big Idea Club? Sure, Rufus. Um, For one, we just added our second challenge, the Next Big Idea app. It's called the Remote Work Challenge. And, you know, I think a lot of us are wondering how to stay productive and connected at work right now, even if we're thousands of miles away. As you are in California, I'm in New York. And uh, when you take on the Remote Work Challenge, you're going to get the key insights from five books on remote work in 15 minutes per day. Yeah, this has been good for our long-distance relationship, Rufus. I think it's really helped us find ways to communicate and collaborate better. True. And it's not just useful for podcast producers and hosts. It's useful for all of us because we're all spending so much time working remotely. It makes sense to take an hour and try to figure out how to do it better. Absolutely. And your guides on this challenge are some brilliant writers. Uh, Cedal Neely, who's a professor at Harvard, and Helen Peterson and Charlie Warzel. They're all brilliant, and it's an incredible, helpful course. So download the Next Big Idea app and give our new Remote Work Challenge a try. So Rufus, what else is going on? Well, I'm so glad you asked, Caleb. In recent weeks, we've been working on making the app snappier faster, more responsive, and we've tweaked the design. I think these subtle little touches make a big difference when you're using an app. Definitely. All right, folks, if you need a little more Next Big Idea in your life, follow me, Rufus Griscom, on LinkedIn and subscribe to my newsletter where I invite listeners like you to join me in conversation about each week's episode. Plus, there are links to bonus content, funny photos, and my personal musings. Special thanks to Eileen Boyle at Audaire Media. This episode was written and produced by Caleb Bissinger. Our executive producer is Michael Kavnat. Sound designed by Mike Toda. The team at LinkedIn helped us moneyball our podcast. I'm Rufus Griscom. See you next week.